Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that a breed of dog in French called something like the Doge de Bordeaux, I said that entirely wrong, and my wife who speaks French would be very angry with me for that. And if you are from France or Canada and you speak French, I apologize because I only learned a little bit of Spanish. So, hey, that's just life. Anyway, this kind of dog de Bordeaux breed has the shortest average lifespan of only five to eight years. But the longest average lifespan is chihuahuas, those like small, annoying yap dogs, uh, with an average of 18 years. But in May of 2013, the world's oldest living dog, named Max, was a Louisiana Beagle Dachshund Terrier mix. And this dog passed away at 29, which would have made him 203 in human years. I've actually had six dachshunds. I like dachshunds because they think they're Rottweilers. They just don't know that they're small sausage dogs. And all of them uh, have lived until 17 or 18 years old, which is remarkable. And I have one now who may not make it that long because his genes are completely awesome because of bad breeding practices. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. I wrote a blog post a while back about actually putting him on the Bulletproof diet and actually reducing the amount of raw vegetables he was eating and increasing the amount of fat in his diet and what happened with his weight, especially after we neutered him. I didn't think anyone else knew about this kind of stuff until I came across Melinda Culver. And Melinda's a veterinarian with a PhD from Washington State University in Animal Sciences. And she actually uses MCT oil in dogs and cats. I'm like, how is this possible to find a vet who knows about this stuff? So I was very excited to have her on the show. Melinda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just jump into it. When or how did you think about putting MCT oil in cats and dogs? Like what, what brought that up? Uh, was this research you did in your dissertation or just clinical experience? Like how does that work? Well, it's this, 
Um, didn't really stem from my dissertation, although I did a lot of work with fat cells working on my PhD. This actually stemmed from my current position at my company in which I have discovered uh, medium chain triglycerides or caprylic or capric acids. Uh, these were actually completely unknown to me before my current position at this uh, company. And the great thing about it is I started to learn more about them. I realized that these have a phenomenal benefit in the animal world, uh, just as we see in, in the human world. And they're largely unknown in this uh, particular industry. So I'm really excited to try to bring them out to more uh, to our dogs and our cats and horses as well. So you're putting MCTs in horses? There are a few products that use MCTs in horses. Um, it's not as common in the United States, but uh, it has some applications. Uh, it's being used in other areas like New Zealand um, and Australia. For people who are listening, we'll, we'll take a step back. If you don't know what an MCT is, you might not be alone. It stands for medium chain triglyceride. And these are extracts of mostly coconut and sometimes palm oil that have a specific biological effects. They're much more concentrated than coconut oil, which is the most famous source of them. Uh, can you define MCTs a little bit more for people who are listening uh, who maybe aren't familiar with this? And Bulletproof Brain Octane is the very shortest MCT. We make upgrade MCT. So these are products that, that I manufacture, uh, but it's uh, it, this is more about the science behind them. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell my stuff here, but that's why we're talking about it. So, Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, the MCT oil or medium chain triglycerides are specifically oils that, or fatty acids that are in the eight or 10 carbon chain length. So capric and caprylic acid are the two. Um, and they're found- there, Sorry to interrupt. Aren't uh -huh. there like four lengths of MCT technically? Cause you see the coconut oil, people say they're 62% MCT, but they're actually not. Ah, uh, you're allowing me to get on my soapbox. <laughs> coconut oil, is proudly touted as a huge store of MCT, but in reality, it is not. So if you look back in the historical document, yes, shocking, right? <laughs> so if you look back in the historical documents, you'll see that from the 30s um, and the 20s, when they actually started to do work with C8s and C10s, that was the only, those were the only two chain lengths in which they considered to be medium chain. Everything else, 12, 14, 16 on pyre, were long uh, chain fatty acids. Somewhere around the 70s, if you start to look through the uh, literature, you'll see that there's a, kind of a change in how some of these academics or the researchers are naming them. And so they've kind of snuck the 12 in there and they call that a medium chain. Right about the time where coconut oil and palm oil were uh, making a big push in the industry, right? Well, it turns out that C12 does not behave at all like a C8 or a C10. It does not follow the same metabolic pathways. It ends up in your lymph system, like every other long chain fat that you eat, um, which then allows it to, uh, access to your adipocytes or your fat cells, um, where it's more than happy to be put into fat stores. So when a coconut oil company says you should eat coconut oil because it's 62% MCTs, there's a bit of marketing in there because the predominant MCT that they're talking about actually doesn't act like an MCT. Absolutely. You're 100% correct. So most coconut oil is depend. And again, it's a crop. So you're looking at yeah. where it's grown, when it's grown, how long the growing season is, what's is anywhere from five to maybe 15% C8 and C10 fatty acid. The rest is all C12 and higher. So it's in essence a fat. That is definitely my experience there. And we have the C8 and C10, uh, which are the, the MCTs that we are talking about in this, uh, in this podcast. Um, there's some stuff that you can buy out there that talks about it being whatever percentage MCTs, but they don't tell you which MCTs it is. And that's because you can actually cut costs by including MCTs that aren't actually MCTs. Whether people are going to use this for themselves or for their animals, let's actually just focus on animals for now. Dogs, cats, and horses. So I think there's more dog listeners than cat listeners, but I'm not sure. So let's start with dogs. And there's probably fewer horse listeners because horses like eat a lot and they're like big and expensive and all. I grew up, my sister had a horse, so like I know how big and expensive they are. So let's talk dogs first and let's switch to cats and let's like round it off with horses. All right. What about dogs? What, what, <laughs> how do we do this? Well, you know, you certainly, uh, as far as feeding an MCT to a dog, you can just top dress it on their food. 
You know, it's really hard because most of the time you would say if you're looking to affect a weight loss in an animal, and as we know, obesity is huge in humans and it's just as huge in animals. Um, estimates are anywhere from 50 to 60% of our dogs and cats are obese. So you would not necessarily want to you know, add an extra fat, which is why coconut oil would not be the best thing to add to your dog's diet. But an MCT oil would actually work wonders because of the metabolic pathway. It, it's um, metabolized so quickly and it's formed ketone bodies and the ketone bodies are used all over the body for energy, such as the heart, the muscle, the brain's a great user of uh, medium chain triglyceride ketone bodies. So you can certainly just top dress it on to your dog's normal diet, um, be it canned food or a bit of kibble. That would be one way to do it. And there are some diets out there that are starting to incorporate medium chain triglycerides into the uh, into their formulation. Into like a pellet food for dogs. Exactly, exactly. So, so is there an amount you should do? I, I admit with uh, my dachshund Merlin, um, he gained a bunch of weight after he was castrated uh, when he was about three and we castrated him because he was started marking everywhere. I'm like, okay, sorry, Merlin, but the, this had to happen. So uh, when he gains, it's like ballooned up. Yeah. I just started kind of pouring a little on there. But my big concern with humans is what we affectionately call disaster pants. Uh, MCTs have a highly laxative effect, especially the ones that are less pure. And I was concerned that I'd have something worse than marking from my dog in the house. Uh, projectile diarrhea is never fun when you're dachshund. So that didn't happen. Is this a problem if you overfeed fats to dogs? It can be a problem, but you have to feed a lot of okay. uh, fats to dogs. Um, the studies I have seen in which they have fed MCTs to dogs, they fed it up to 15% um, in this one feeding study and they determined that there were no adverse effects from it. So there were no changes in stool volume or consistency. At about 15%, the researchers reported that the animals had decreased their food intake, which you and I probably know comes from a different reason other than they attribute it to a palatability issue. Yeah, so dogs are like, this is gross. I'm not eating it. That's what that's what okay. they said. But uh, we know from the effects that uh, MCTs actually have on the body that it's quite possible that that wasn't the reason that they had decreased their food intake. And this could be simply because they had adequate energy and they weren't hungry? That would be it. The satiation effect of MCTs, exactly. Hmm. I've never given bulletproof coffee to my dog. I don't think dogs process coffee that well, but it certainly works on me and it has the MCTs, which I don't care about food anymore. And That's right. I can see my dog not caring about food anymore. Uh, and that is an effect that I've noticed. Dachshunds tend to be food obsessed, not quite like a Labrador, but they're they're pretty hardcore. And we put Merlin on an every other day, once a day diet. So intermittent fasting for this little guy. And you think he'd be miserable and like most dogs would like eat their way through a sofa on this. He didn't care. He walked around wagging his tail all the time. He was totally satisfied. He was hungry. He ate and he wasn't picky when he ate. Uh, but that was that. He lost his weight. It came down in a couple months. It was painless. And to this day, he just he's like, oh, food, I guess I'll eat. OK, whatever. And like I'm the same way. And it's so cool because no one wants a dog who's like, you know, standing there staring at you while you eat, like ready to pounce. This screw that noise. Give him MCT. Exactly. Is, is, that, is that what you've seen? Because it was dramatic for Merlin. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've seen I've seen a similar effect, and it's supported by um, some of the the research. Um, although I'm not sure if the research is attributed to that. Okay, they might have just said dogs don't like MCT. Merlin at fifteen percent or higher. Yeah. Okay, he won't lick it off your fingers like he would bacon grease, <laughs> but. Still, you pour it on food and he'll eat it. You know, mm -hmm. he generally eats raw meat, uh, a small amount of vegetables, desiccated liver, mm -hmm. uh, and some various vitamin things. Uh, and we get MCT and sometimes uh, butter. So he gets a little bit more long chain fat if he's eating yes. more lean, grass fed raw meat. Um, he's a small dog. He really, the bison femurs, he can't lift them. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, we, we try and give him bones, but he keeps swallowing them. So he doesn't even get that many bones. Uh, he gets magnesium and calcium. Like, I don't know what else. What what am I missing there for an eight-year-old dachshund? Uh, most dogs are able to process uh, or manufacture all of their nutrition that they need. Essential fatty acids, which you've covered by the grass-fed beef, um, always something and usually an imbalance of essential fatty acids, you'll, sh you'll show up in the skin. So there'll be flaky skin or a dull hair coat or even allergies may pop up. And what does that mean if there's uh, 
if they have allergies or dry skin, they need more fish oil or something? Or Usually it's and not always because uh, what has happened is there's a hypersensitivity of the immune system to external allergens. Uh, sometimes it's the food they eat um, and it shows up in their skin, but sometimes it's environment, like so, something like what we would have for hay fever. But in animals, it's not a respiratory issue, it's a skin issue. So what we believe happens or what the growing evidence may, is showing is that there's a, a dysregulation of how the skin is is actually built. So the brick and mortars that put together the layers of the skin are not functioning properly, which allows a lot of these allergens um, access to the immune system whereby they should be actually blocked. And so some of these animals become hypersensitive to normal everyday allergens like mold and grass and trees and those types of things. It's interesting you mentioned mold and uh, I'm definitely into what does mold do to our immune system because it, it's fascinating and because I lived in a moldy house. It just so happens that Merlin's food dish was right next to the dishwasher where he used to eat. There was a leak behind this dishwasher when it was replaced with a new one. It released 88 times more aspergillus, I think, and penicillium, if memory serves. Both, uh, he stopped eating, so did the other dog who was with us it entirely, just didn't have any interest in food, wouldn't go near it. The whole family got sick. Like it was, it was actually really a, a negative time. And these were like toxin forming species. And he has been more hypersensitive ever since then. In fact, so have I. Funny how molds can do that. Yeah. Uh, but you're mentioning that this can be not just from like a, an allergic response, it's actually a collagen disorder in the skin. It, yeah, um, there's thoughts that it has something to do with ceramide, which is one of the, you know, for lack of a better word, the fatty acid uh, makeup of the skin. Um, and there's some thoughts about this in people too, uh, you know, psoriasis and eczema, uh, disorders of the ceramide production, ceramides one and six and so on. So in animals, we think it might be a, an issue with ceramide or how it's packaged. And so the skin isn't as airtight as we would like it to be. And so it allows the uh, immune system uh, access to external allergens. Now, this could be partly from genetics, you know, because this is something that your body's done. And, and I, I actually do think there's quite a bit of genetic, genetics um, that predisposes certain dogs and certain breeds of dogs to having uh, skin disorders that maybe aren't as structurally sound as a normal dog skin. Well, certainly even in humans, we're finding a big amount of genetic variants for collagen formation. Some people have stretchier, basically collagen fibers than others. And there are some really bad collagen problems, but it turns out the variation's amazing. Um, I actually should be giving Merlin, I just thought of this, uh, actually collagen peptides because well, I put them in my coffee sometimes and like they're a bulletproof product. So I tend to have them around the house. But do dogs benefit when they eat collagen directly? Because I actually just haven't thought of giving it to them. I don't know if I've seen anything that says they do, but I don't yeah. know if I've seen anything that says that they don't. Well, so, I'll just force them on his raw meat MCT stuff and see what happens. There you go. <laughs> uh, I know that if when you're feeding dogs, and sometimes these allergic dogs, you know, we think that they're having, you know, fatty acid issues. We'll feed them essential fatty acids, usually a fish oil because it's an EPA or DHA type of thing. Um, and a lot of these dogs have improvement in their, their clinical signs, which is usually one of the way, only ways we can tell if they're getting better from the product. So less itching um, and redness decreases, and some of them actually are able to resolve some of their problems that they're having with the skin. And some of them just get a reduction, so there may be another component happening or may not be 100% fatty acid related. So especially if your dog seems to have some sort of allergic tendencies or potential allergies, uh, essential fatty acids are a really good thing to add to the diet. Okay, that is, uh, that's really cool. And I think anyone listening to this who has animals and isn't providing a little bit of supplemental help, especially if you're feeding kibble, like honestly, yikes, like maybe you just want to do a little bit there. Do you recommend that people use dried dog food formulations for animals? I tell anybody who asks me that, that they need to do what is right for their animal um, and also what is right for them. Uh, sometimes uh, people like to feed a raw diet and a lot of veterinarians are against raw diet because there's salmonella issues. Uh, there's, you know, there's always some issue with, with raw food and, and I can understand that, but some animals do absolutely wonderfully on this diet. Some animals do superb on dog chow for all of, you know, 
And so I'm not going to say that there's not a diet that's not out there. So if you're if you're thinking that your diet isn't working or maybe your animal is is overweight or lethargic, uh, having skin issues, there's always opportunities to improve and check another diet. Maybe he's having an allergy to food. Um, I know that my cats are uh, one of my cats is allergic to uh, quite a bit of foods out there. So. You just have to keep trying and see. And if dry food fits into your schedule and your lifestyle, then that just you need to do what's best for you and for your animal at the same time. That's a, a very uh, politically correct answer that won't offend I try not to any, be all, <laughs> won't offend Well, I try not to be all preachy about it. You know, but, I feed a dry kibble as well. So there's also the, the notion if you have like a big dog, uh, grass fed meat's kind of expensive. And uh, my sister raises marimas, which are these, you know, giant Italian, like 150 to 200 pound, like dogs that like eat bears for lunch or something. And she raises them. So she thought about feeding them her chickens. She's like, but they'll eat all of my chickens in a week and then they would kill them all. So they get like frozen Tyson Farms chicken, which is about as good as it gets. But then you got salmonella. So I don't know that there is an answer if you have a big dog. Merlin eats like this much meat. It doesn't matter. I could feed him filet mignon and it, I wouldn't notice it because it's very small. So maybe the argument there is buy smaller dogs and feed them better. I, who knows? Exactly. Okay. Now, let's talk. Uh, well, actually, let's summarize for dog owners. Up to 15% MCT in the diet poured on their food. And mm -hmm. what happens then is the dogs are less hungry, less food obsessed, and they tend to lose weight. If I'm kind of summarizing this correctly. And they'll beat you at chess. <laughs> <laughs> Does it actually change their behavior? It actually, um, there's been quite a few uh, studies out there demonstrating, uh, especially in the older dogs, the um, ability for the ketone bodies that are formed from MCT consumption to uh, help in cognitive function. Shocking that it also yes. works in humans the same way. I, 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 I love it. Okay. <laughs> it's so, funny. A, a mammal is a mammal, isn't it? So you can teach an old dog new tricks as long as you, you pour MCT on their food? Absolutely. <laughs> that is so cool. And I had no idea. All right. Let's talk cats. All what right. do you do differently with cats? So cats, like a lot of people like to say cats are just small dogs, but they're absolutely not small dogs. So unlike dogs, um, dogs just tend to eat a lot. Uh, they tend to go through their feeding behaviors are different. They tend to go through these gorging uh, binging fast cycles it has to do with how, you know, they would kill or come across some carrion and they would eat and then they might not eat again for a couple of days. Cats uh, are quite different. They actually hunt all day long looking for tiny, small meals, mice, crickets, whatever. So they're very good at um, kind of pacing themselves and eating all day long. The other uh, issue we have with cats is that they have, uh, they're an obligate carnivore. So they're unable to make taurine and enough quantities to uh, stay healthy. And they also are in dire need of arachidonic acid. So these need to be supplied by the diet. An omnivore diet like a dog or a human doesn't quite give them the load that they need. Uh, so they're obligate carnivores. And so they must eat meat. So people out there who are thinking they might be able to switch their cat over to a vegetarian diet, they're sorely mistaken. I've seen canned vegan cat food and it just makes me sad because yeah. like those cats are all neurotic. It's not fair. Yeah, no, it's it's really isn't. I mean, it's nice that you've chosen to be vegan, but your cat would never choose that <laughs> an option. So I, I, the last two cats I had were outdoor cats that I inherited and they lived in a barn uh, and their names were Carney and Asada. <laughs> Which, if you you know you know what that means, it's kind of funny. They were outdoor cats, um, but like you said, they snacked all day long. Uh, they would, you know, they would literally eat just about anything they could get their hands on, uh, which was good because they're mostly eating the mice I didn't want in the house. Uh, and it, yeah, to try and feed them dog food, I don't think would have been very successful. And to feed them on a schedule like Merlin, I think they would have gone crazy and probably tried to eat me too. They do. They go a little crazy um, with the, the meal-fed uh, method of feeding. And another thing that happens to cats that doesn't necessarily happen to dogs is that they become insulin-resistant, like people. Oh, interesting. So they also have uh, obesity-induced diabetes, like people. So it's important to keep your cat 
thin, you know, for the same reasons that you would want to stay thin yourself to avoid insulin resistance and diabetes, as well as the joint issues and so on and so forth. But there has been some talk that that this kind of meal feeding that we're doing to the cats um, is actually inducing an insulin resistant effect. Oh, because they eat a lot at one time instead of just walking around grazing. Exactly, exactly. And they're getting spikes and, and, and glucose spikes and insulin spikes. And it's so they um, recommend, uh, well, I think a lot of veterinarians still recommend meal feeding because the problem is over 50% of our cats are obese, but it's not necessarily, I think, because of them eating too much at one time, they have different metabolisms. So in contrast to a dog, cats require higher amounts of fat, higher amounts of protein, and very low amounts of carbohydrates uh, in their diet. Now, people would say, well, they shouldn't have a carb carbohydrate at all because they're a carnivore. But if you remember, when you eat a mouse, um, you're actually ingesting small amounts of carbohydrates that they, the mouse would have eaten. So there's always some, um, and they recommend maybe 8% uh, carbohydrates, but the protein levels are up around 30% and the fat levels are up around 20%. So this is completely different than what you might want to feed your dog as far as a, a ratio. So some enterprising listener today is probably thinking about making a special device to like release small snacks to your cat all day long rather than feeding them one meal. Is that yeah. actually something interesting? It is. It is. And they have, you know, they have them for dogs. They, you can put their meal in a little ball and they roll them around and the spits out little pieces of kibble and it keeps them active. Um, and certainly I've seen them for cats because it would be a good exercise for them. So the other problem we have with cats, and, and this is true with dogs as well, uh, but more so with cats, because dogs often will get to go out into the yard to go to the bathroom or go for a walk, is that the cats are require, are getting no inter, no interaction and no exercise at all. So, you know, we, of course, we recommend 15 minutes of exercise for your cat a day, um, and it, it's great mental stimulus, and, and it really kind of gets this, you know, it gets them moving. They need to be moving, because they're hunters. They hunt all day um, to get their food. Um, and of course, we bring them indoors and try to keep them safe, and then we make them go insane because we don't give them enough interaction. So, if you're going to modify your cat's diet, oh, well, actually, first, so meal timing matters. Let's talk about that because a big part of the Bulletproof Diet Book. Quick plug: bulletproofdietbook.com. Please go pre-order because we're just now in that phase, and I'm so excited about this. But I talk a lot about meal timing for humans in there, about what to eat when, and how it has huge impacts on how you feel and, and on your metabolism. What you've just pointed out is that for cats, meal timing is an issue that may be tied to diabetes. But I never ask about meal timing for dogs. So is there a difference between cats who you want to have lots of small snacks, basically, and for dogs? Like, what, what should we do differently if we're going to really, like, hack our pets? I really like to get my pets, my dogs, um, on an ad-lib diet, which means that they eat whatever they need at the time. But it's often hard because they're, sometimes they're just hardwired to eat whatever's in the bowl because they don't know if any more is coming. It's some sort of innate ability to determine that this is the only food they're going to have for some time. Well, humans have that same thing. That's why we eat like all the cookies. Like a... Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to get any more cookies. <laughs> you must eat them. So I do like, you know, there are quite a few dogs out there that I've had people tell me, I just put the food down and they just eat a small amount all day. And whenever they're done, they're done. And that's great. But a lot of the dogs can't do that. And I don't know if it's something that we need to train from puppyhood and stop trying to do the meal feeding at puppyhood. A lot of times we'll, you know, put down a bowl and the puppies will eat it all and then that's it. And then they don't get any more food all day. And so then they kind of learn that meal feeding is, is right. going to be the way to go. All the puppies that I've had, I've, I've left food down and they've learned to to pace themselves and not eat all of their food all day. But this may not work for every animal. So I actually prefer ad-lib feeding. Okay, which means you just put down put down a, a bowl put of food their, and let them eat it when they want it. Yeah, figure out what their daily intake is supposed to be so that you're not giving them too much food because it's quite possible that they would eat all of the food that you would put down through the course of the day and, uh, and just let them nibble throughout the day. Okay. Uh, and then on cats, it's kind of the same thing. They would just nibble. Okay, so you, you for dogs and cats, your optimal meal timing is throughout the day. But on cats, you don't want them to eat it all at one time. But on dogs, you don't really care if they do or don't. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And what percentage of MCT, given that cats like higher amounts of fat and higher amounts of protein, uh, what percentage of MCT would be appropriate? So there is a little bit of a hiccup. So there has been 
far less research done in uh, feeding MCT oil to cats. Uh, one study was done in the 80s um, in which they determined that the cats don't like MCT oil because they started to not eat their food once they've added it, I think, at 5%. Um, and of course, there may be another answer for that. Maybe the cat wasn't necessarily hungry. Um, but of course, the, they you know, figured it was due to a taste aversion. Now, my cats will actually lick the oil off my fingers, off the spoon. Um, if I put it on salad, uh, they will actually eat the leaves of the lettuce to get the MC2 oil off. So I'm not quite sure what these researchers were feeding or doing, but my cats have uh, demonstrated some different. So I would just start with, you know, a teaspoon, uh, five mils, um, and just kind of drizzle it on uh, the dry, or you can mix it in with some can and see how that works. Okay. Now the 30% protein that cats like, so gluten is protein. So we could just give them a bunch of gluten extracted from wheat and they're fine. Does the mm -hmm. type of protein matter <laughs> um, that you're giving to your cats and dogs? Uh, you know, the correct answer would be you should feed up good, high-quality protein. But I have yet to see a protein that couldn't be digested by, <laughs> by, your, uh, your, by your internal enzymes. So, you know, you, you don't want it to be – you want it to be correctly balanced. And in cats, taurine is the amino acid that you're really looking for. So you want to make sure that the amino acid ratios are right. But you haven't seen, like, more autoimmune conditions in dogs, more rheumatoid arthritis. Like, like in, in humans, like, there's, there's masses of – immune system issues that come about even in non-celiacs. Like there's eight kinds of cross-reactivity that we've measured with, you know, the lining of your nerves, with your brain, with your joints, et cetera. Um, I don't have data because I just haven't done the research on animals, but you're not too concerned about feeding grains to, to dogs and cats. You know, I don't really like feeding grains to dogs and cats. Unfortunately, in the world, that's exactly what we're feeding them. So you can't make a dry kibble without some sort of grain. A lot of times they'll say grain-free, but they've just subbed out the corn or the wheat for something like barley or some other type of grain. To make the kibble, you need a starch, and so you're going to have some sort of starch. Dogs are able to digest the, the food quite well. Yeah, I think dog, normal dog food is about 95% digestible, so uh, they do quite well with the starch. And maybe we are not quite aware of how it's affecting the body and maybe we're having more issues with obesity because of the extra starch. Or maybe it's simple. I know you're not a big fan of it, but it maybe it's just as simple as calories in, calories out. No, the calories actually matter. It's, it, it, counting calories is a terrible way to lose weight. It, but the, the bottom line is if you lock someone like Ray Cronus does in a metabolic chamber and measure every little calorie, like if you don't poop it out, like it's going to go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that you have very little control <laughs> over how your body uses calories and how many you put in and that your body changes. So like, yeah, in a dog, you can at least control what they put in. That's like, exactly right. Yeah. It works quite well in dogs. You just don't feed them as much and you try to get them out more and they actually lose the weight. And it may also increase their stress though, right? You look at stress behaviors of a hungry dog. Yeah. And part of the problem in humans is that when our stress goes up, our performance goes down. It's like, oh, look, I induced a famine and I told my body that a tiger is chasing me for two hours a day. <laughs> look, I lost weight and like life sucks. And that's the conundrum that, that we're all trying to solve in the health community. No. No, that's really true. And I'm not eating any fat and I can't think properly. <laughs> exactly. And so there's a comfortable middle there. Uh, and I'm the first one to say calories are a scam because when people tell you, you need to count every little calorie going in, I'm like, you didn't count going out. So it's not, it's a scam. But yeah, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm down with the fact that a calorie exists and it's just about as good as a gram for measuring your food. Um, yeah. As long as you know your hunger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. So we don't know the percentage of MCT for cats, but we know uh, start with a teaspoon and see how they do. Yep. Okay. And the kinds of changes that people would see in cats would be uh, less hunger, more focused. Do cats learn new tricks too? Like, do they get better cognitive function? I am not. There's no research out there okay. that says that they do. Probably because nobody wants to work with cats. Because I think somebody said that it was easier to train goldfish than to train cats. <laughs> And cats are kind of mean. If they don't like what you're doing to them, they'll let you know. Yeah. But but there, but there are great advances in um, these cognitive tests for cats, and so they're they're trying to. They just don't learn the same way that dogs do. So the whole you know the whole way of training dogs and training cats are completely different. So you know repetition and reward by giving a pat on the head or a little bit of food doesn't necessarily work with cats. So you kind of have to relearn your way of of dealing with them and getting them to do your tests. But I would say that. 
Uh, ketone bodies are formed in cats and in dogs and in people from the metabolism of, of uh, medium chain triglycerides. And the ketone bodies are used in the brain. And there's no reason why they would not work to uh, enhance uh, brain function. So there are different processes for making MCT oil. And, and I have found mostly by titration with disaster pants, as I was, was just going down the path of, of creating Bulletproof and, and all, there's something called C17, which can be present in MCT oil. Is that something that you've, you've looked at in respect to animals or MCT? I, I don't even know if this is something that's part of your set of knowledge. Is it? I have not looked at it. A lot of these odd length, odd not as in strange, but odd as in <laughs> not even right. <laughs> chain length fatty acids um, haven't been studied be- as often because they're just not as common. Um, I have noticed that the the less pure sources of MCT have a much higher percentage of uh, basically GI distress, for to use the polite word, uh, and it looks like it's because of C17, but I, I, I don't know for certain about that, but we know that C17 causes those symptoms, and we know that it's a byproduct of some MCT manufacturing processes, um, but it sounds like that's uh, not, not an area where we can have a, a, a great discussion. It's never a great discussion. <laughs> yeah, you know, as long as you talk about disaster pants, it was, it's at least funny. And uh, and I have to say thanks to Kelly Starrett, uh, the guy who runs the San Francisco CrossFit, who wrote this book called Becoming a Supple Leopard, uh, because he coined the term. You know, he's got a lot of people at his CrossFit gym uh, drinking bulletproof coffee, and he's like, "Well, if you take too much, you're gonna find this out." And uh, I, I certainly any MCT will do it, but certainly mm-hmm. different ones do it in different degrees. Well, that's definitely a good thing to, to know. And I have a look at to C17. Um, I, I think it's actually an important variable that is just overlooked because a lot of times for economic reasons, uh, manufacturers of all food products, like they, they come up with a limit like, well, we can test that limit for like five bucks. And the next level of, of limit testing is like 50 bucks. Like we're not going to spend 10 times more on quality testing. Uh, and besides, who cares because the legal limits here uh, or it's so small, no one will notice. Uh, but it actually can have a biological effect and recipients yeah. and binders and stuff can do that as well. And, um, you know, I just, I don't know, maybe I just pay attention to that stuff in, in an unusual way. All right. So now we've got cats, we've got dogs, but we haven't talked horses. What in the heck are horses doing? I mean, I, I, I always fed them buckets of like warm oats if it was cold and hay and stuff like that. Um, apples where you take the seeds out if you're really careful. But, yes. but, so like, okay, MCT in horses, what is that? That actually surprised me when you said that. So, so what is going on with that? So of course the theory is again, that because of the um, burst of the ketones from consumption of MCT and it can be used as an energy source in the muscles that this would help racing animals or performance <laughs> animals. This is called brain octane oil. That That's high right. octane for racing. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. But, but that was actually what they were trying to do was, was do in racehorses. Yeah, there has been some uh, work, a little bit of work in racehorses. Um, the problem is, again, the horses are so big and they're so hard to feed appreciable amounts. And then how are you going to test? I mean, did they run the race two seconds faster today? Is it because they're just faster today or is it because of, so a lot of times they look at respiratory, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff they try to look at, but, and they're all, and it's expensive, expensive to test them, expensive to house them. So there's not a huge uh, volume of information of MCT in horses. There are some products that do tout uh, MCT and some of them that tout coconut oil, although those are mostly weight gain ones. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. Sometimes it's just for better digestion because of how easily they they are able to be digested um, in our geriatric animals. And this is across all animals, dogs, cats, and horses. Uh, If you need an energy source and you're not necessarily the best digester of of food or fats, uh, MCT is a great source. Uh, There's been research in cats that show that as they age, the ability to digest fats decreases. So in contrast to kind of most people and dogs, as the cats age, they actually need higher fat diets because they're not putting on the weight. They're actually losing the weight. I'm sure you've seen old skinny cats around. But in the horses, okay. you know, their, their goal is to give them a burst of energy. Now, horses run a lot on glycogen as just... And glycogen, just for people listening, glycogen is basically what your body uses to store carbohydrate after you eat it. 
Yes. So they're great. They're great at gluconeogenesis and they're great at uh, getting the glycogen back out um, for use in times when they're running. Uh, and so the ketone bodies aren't necessarily as crucial for them in, in say, in other species. But in the studies I have seen in which they have fed MCTs or even a high fat diet, uh, this was kind of before when they were looking at just high fat diets, which if you feed enough will induce some sort of ketosis. They have shown that the ketones are actually used by the muscle and they have a sparing effect on the glycogen and the glucose. So does that mean that it's going to help them run faster or run farther? Uh, possibly because um, at some point the ketones will be used up and they'll have ample stores of glu glucose left, um, whereby other animals may have used up all their glucose and glycogen stores. Okay, that, that's kind of interesting. So if the, if the horse is going to bonk, to use a term from when I used to be a long distance cyclist, you know, when you basically run out of glycogen and like you know, the world's coming to an end and if I don't eat something now, I'm going to die. Uh, not really, you just feel like it. Um, so basically in a race horse environment, when that happens, having the ketones ready, which the horse mitochondria can use, maybe not as normally or as effectively as they use sugar, but at least it's there, so then they have more energy. Okay, that, yes. that makes sense. Now, yes. you said something that, that has me all curious. When we look at the way fat is digested by the liver and then we look at the way MCTs are digested by the liver, I know in humans it's very different when you're looking above the 10 length. In animals, is, is it kind of the same way? And can you walk us through what happens when you ingest an MCT versus when, or when an animal ingests an MCT versus when an animal ingests a longer chain fat? Like, like what does the liver do? What is the digestive process here? I think people who think about the kind of fat they eat would probably love hearing this. You bet. So, we can start off uh, by saying uh, the fat digestion usually begins in the mouth. In people, we have a lipase in our mouth um, and we have lipase in our stomach and it starts to digest these fats as soon as we eat them. In dogs, they have no lipase in their mouth, but they do have it in their stomach. In rats, they have it in their mouth and in their stomach. In cats, they do not necessarily have a lot in their stomach or in their mouth, uh, but all animals, human, all throughout all of the animals species will have it pancreatic lipase. In the, so pancreas will release a lipase to digest the fats once it hits the small intestine. So your ability to, to kind of get a, a super boost from uh, MCT may differ depending on what animal you are. So again, humans, we can start digestion in the stomach. Uh, there's been some research that says that we can actually absorb some of this MCT or fatty acids, medium chain fatty acids from our stomach. And if they were my cells, maybe they would absorb faster through the stomach. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, if you're listening, my cells, that's what happens when you put it in a blender with coffee. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. That's right. When it's suspension, exactly. But in all animals, it's going to digest in the, in, in, in the small intestine, most of it. In the small intestine, the leg place will come and cleave off all of the different fatty acids. Now, if you're a medium chain triglyceride, MCT oil, you're going to get all of those little fatty acids released and they're going to pass in through the uh, intestine, into the intestinal cell. That's called an enterocyte, but it's going to go into the intestinal cell and it's going to go out the other side of the intestinal cell because it's freely diffusible. It freely moves across the membranes. Now, if you eat a long chain fatty acid or a long chain triglyceride, or if you're just got done eating your steak, which has a bunch of long chains in it, it's going to take a little bit more time. So in the intestine, it's waiting for the pancreatic lipase. The pancreatic lipase is going to come. It's going to start cleaving off some of these long chains, but they don't freely diffuse into the intestinal cell. They actually need some sort of transport. Uh, we think it's a protein-mediated transport. And inside the cell, then they get all back together into triglycerides. So the body has to take them apart, move them into the cell, put them all back together into the cell. Then it packages them into this little chylomicron, which is this little ball of fats and could have some vitamins in there, could have a couple other things in there, but it packages them all up and it spits it out the other side of the cell, but it doesn't go into the bloodstream. It goes into the lymph system. So the lymphatics that travel all around your body and it transports in what we call chyle. Chyle is kind of this milky white substance and it's milky because it's full of fat. 
Now, remember, the medium-chain fatty acid or medium-chain triglycerides that we ate were freely diffusible into the uh, intestinal cell, and they're freely diffusible off the other side. They don't need to be repackaged. They're not. They just move, and they move into the bloodstream, which is the portal vein. The first stop for the portal vein is the liver. Liver is great because it's going to take that medium-chain fatty acid into the liver cell, and it's going to take it into the mitochondria, and it's going to process it very quickly into a ketone. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is the most common one, but you get some acetoacetate as well. So these ketones then are, leave the liver uh, into the blood and are transported throughout the body for where they're needed. Now remember our friends, the long chain triglyceride now sitting in this sludgy, milky chyle transported all around the body. It finally makes it up into uh, where it's going to be put into the bloodstream and that's thoracic ducts up by your heart in your chest. And then once it's in the blood, it can do its magic. So it can do all sorts of things that, you know, fats like to do in there. For the most part, it just ends up in your fat cells, to be perfectly honest, because it may not ever make it back to the liver. And in most cases, we eat far more calories than we need, far much more nutrients that we need. And our body will preferentially use things like glucose because it's a much faster source of energy. And it's not going to use fat because that's a very difficult source of energy to get. So uh, it will just store it for times of famine. Now, our MCTs, again, that was very quick and they're not, so once they hit the liver, they're all processed and they're not actually uh, available to be put into fat cells. It's, that's just as simple as that. They're gone. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty different system. And in the liver, they're turned into ketones. The liver, when it needs mitochondrial function, can use the ketones itself to oxidize toxins or to do its digestion process, to do its protein formation. And then the rest of the ketones become circulating through the blood and then they're used the same way glucose would be used, well, slightly differently in the creation of ATP, but they're used in the brain, in the body, uh, anywhere that you need extra good mitochondrial function. Yes. What are the, the parts of our metabolism or parts of our bodies, whether we're animals or humans, that have the most mitochondrial density that need the most mitochondrial function? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I know the answer to that one. Uh, I would say the muscles. Yeah, but by weight, that's that's actually a great answer. I, I didn't know the answer <laughs> to this. It's totally a trivia question. It was part of the research I did for my book. Um, the highest density was prefrontal cortex and the cardiac. But that's density per gram. In terms of overall use, you nailed it. Yeah, it's your muscles because you have a lot of them. So, okay. Ah. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I was like, oh, wait, maybe that isn't common knowledge because it took a long time to actually find the research for that because it's, it's like, it's not yeah. that well known and there's a few pointers to that. But I, okay. I know that the use for uh, ketones is, I think it's brain, heart, muscle. But if you're looking at overall body weight, it's going to be muscle more than the other two. Awesome. Now I'm going to ask you one more question really fast and then we have to get to our final question because we're coming up on the end of the show. And this one has to do with cows. And in the first book that I worked on around nutrition uh, for basically before pregnancy and during pregnancy for humans, uh, one of the things that came out was that by eating more MCTs, you can really shift the percentage of MCTs in your breast milk up to about 17%, at least if you're a woman and you're making breast milk. <laughs> so given given that like one of the things why well, you want more mcts because babies use ketones to get fat into their brain so they can actually assemble the other fatty acids in their brains what happens with like say cows like i'm, I'm going to get a cow next year or maybe two and i'm sort of thinking should i be like adding coconut flakes or should i be adding actually like pouring some mct oil in the cow, so the cow make like upgraded butter or something. Like, like help me understand what fats do to milk that comes out the other end. Well, you can certainly alter the fat, fatty acid content of the milk uh, and the species of the fatty acid in of the milk uh, by by what you're feeding them. Now, cows are kind of a different creature because of the rumen, the, the you know the four stomachs, and how much of the short chain fatty acids that they actually use versus the mediums and the longs. There were, I've seen some studies in which they have fed uh, MCTs or even probably coconut in order to effect uh, an increase of MCT in the, in the milk. And I don't think it worked. Now, cows don't necessarily put a lot of MCTs in their milk. The biggest animal, if you're going to try to oomph the milk content, would be a goat. Yeah. So, which is kind of what makes you know, goat milk so much better than, or goat cheese even, better than uh, cow 
milk and cheese. So goat cheese has more MCTs and it has more butyric acid, which is another big thing. Like short chain fatty acids are a big part of the Bulletproof diet. Yeah. Um, because there are studies, at least in humans, I haven't seen the animal ones, that look at the effect of feeding uh, MCTs versus generating them from resistant starch in the gut. And they're different. They're both good. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like it's such a fascinating thing. And I, I'm so glad that you told me I shouldn't give MCT to my cows most likely because that, that's good to know. Not that I even have a cow yet, but when I get one, it's, it's going to kick ass, I tell you. <laughs> All right. Final question and one that every guest gets asked on the show And that is, given all that you know about animals and all you know about people and just your whole life path, three most important recommendations for people who want to basically perform better at whatever it is they're here to do. So it's not athletic, it's not just cognitive, but like most important things you have to offer. Let's see. I would say the first one would be never stop learning. You know, I think you should always be trying to learn something new, a new skill, a new, a new task, a new experience. Um, always question, but if you're going to question, you should try to find the answer. Uh, I think it keeps you young and it keeps you vibrant. You should never just stay status quo. The second one would be, I'd say, you know, sleep is your friend. <laughs> <laughs> always get the most and best sleep that you can. There's so much that you can heal in your body through sleep. You know, your mental, your cognitive function is improved with sleep. Your body heals itself with sleep. Puppies and kittens, you know why they sleep so much? Because that's how their body makes their, them grow and their brains work. So never disturb a sleeping puppy and kitten. They need to sleep. <laughs> My last one would be love the animals because animals are what makes us human. Oh, that's cool. And that's not what anyone has said before. I I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about not just people performance, but animal performance. And I also appreciate that you're a veterinarian and a PhD scientist in this because you've clearly done your work and it, and it shows when you answer these, uh, these questions. So Melinda Culver, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Have you heard about our new brain octane oil? It goes far beyond upgraded MCT or any other coconut product for creating maximum cognitive function. This is about 4% of what's in coconut oil. It's 18 times stronger than coconut oil, and it's what I put in my Bulletproof coffee every single day. If you haven't felt the difference between upgraded MCT and brain octane oil, you owe it to yourself to give it a shot. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.